Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Need a cold coffee with a bold flavor? Dunkin' Cold K-Cup pods were specially crafted for cold coffee. Brew over ice straight out of the Keurig coffee maker for smooth, delicious Dunkin' taste you know and love. Find your next Dunkin' Cold coffee in the roasted coffee aisle. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, December 16th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Indre will be back next week. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or on Twitter at inquiringshow. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org minds for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash minds. Help end hunger. And today's episode is sponsored by Children's International. When you give to Children's International, you're giving children the health, education, empowerment, and employment they need to break free for life. At Children's International, 84% of every dollar goes towards helping children. That's how you know you're not just making a donation. You're making an impact. This giving season, give something that counts. Donate today at children.org slash give. That's children.org slash give. One of my best friends in the world is a physicist. In college, he was completely addicted to coffee. Every morning, he'd slowly drip milk into that black liquid. And then he would stop and wander off as he watched the milk and coffee intermix. One day, I finally asked what was happening, and he noted the wonder of the chaos that was happening in the swirling of white and black fluids and the emergence of brown. And that that's where his love affair of physics was best rooted in the chaos theory of the milk and coffee coming together. To him, it was an elegant illustration of such complexity that had baffled physicists for centuries. I thought most physicists only thought of chaos theory after drinking the coffee, but that storm in his coffee cup stuck with me. So when I heard about this week's guest's new book, I jumped at the chance to interview her. Helen Chersky is a physicist and oceanographer currently working in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University College London and is a bubble physicist. She's also a science presenter for the BBC. Her new book is Storm in a Teacup, which is out January 10th in the US. And it's all about the physics inherent in everyday life. We definitely talked about the chaos in a cup of coffee, but also how that dynamic of mixing relates to what's happening currently in our oceans. And how seeing these physical patterns, whether it be in coffee, ketchup, 
and especially bubbles, are incredible analogs to the high-minded physics topics dominating the news. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Helen Chersky. If you're looking for a dose of happiness this holiday season, check out Crazy Good Turns, a podcast celebrating people who do crazy good things for others. Each episode tells a different, vivid story about someone stretching the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. Episode one focuses on former Marine Jake Wood, who, after returning home, founded Team Rubicon, an organization giving veterans a renewed sense of purpose by organizing them for disaster relief. Here's a clip of what you'll hear. You know, over the course of 20 days, you know, what became known as Team Rubicon helped thousands of people. You know, we just kind of laughed about the irony of using counterinsurgency tactics to deliver humanitarian aid. Most of it could be repurposed to help people. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And this episode is brought to you by Blurb. Blurb's custom photo books make gifting easy. Blurb's free bookmaking platform allows you to create customized, professional quality photo books for loved ones from your computer. I just want to relate that my wedding album got turned into a book on Blurb, and it is one of the most cherished things that I own. And because it's not an album and that it's an easy, high-quality flip-through book, I take it out all the time. Want to put your memorable holiday photos onto the pages of a beautiful book? Go to blurb.com slash minds and enter code minds for 25% off quality custom books. That's blurb.com slash minds and enter code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb, make a book, leave your mark. Helen Chersky, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me on. So in college, I had a physicist roommate who was obsessed with his coffee, and he would obsessively watch as he dripped milk into his coffee, marveling at the chaos of the swirling liquids of the the milk and the coffee mixing together, which is a phenomenon that you talk about extensively in your new book, Storm in a Teacup. Take us into the swirl of those liquids. Well, there's... A lot of there's a little bit of snobbishness sometimes about the everyday world. You know, it, people see physics as being either quantum, tiny, weird things, or massive cosmological stuff. And actually, there's all this stuff in the middle, which is still how the universe works. And teacups and stirring milk into coffee, for example, are a really good way into some of that. And a lot of these little things are things people have seen but haven't really noticed because they're so used to them. So when you drop, you know, milk in your coffee, for example, you've got these two liquids, the cold milk and the uh, darker hot coffee that are going to mix together. And you and so, you know, you see you've usually just stirred your coffee to make it. So you get this beautiful swirling around. And the th- important thing is that, you know, you could conceivably think that things might mix just by sort of merging into each other. But that isn't what happens. What happens is you get this swirling around and around, and the mixing happens in swirls. And it doesn't just happen in your cup of tea, that that sort of mixing by swirling process. It also happens up in the atmosphere, for example. We get these big rotating storms that come across the Atlantic and certainly hit us here in Britain. And, um, you know, the latitudes of North America as well, those rotating storms are really common. And that is the mixing of cold and warm air uh, and it's happening by a very similar process to what happens in the teacup. So 
the idea is not just that there's something interesting happening in your teacup, is that that's just a clue to a pattern. And once you know the pattern, you start seeing the same thing in lots of different places. So the little bits of physics of the everyday world are actually telling you how the whole world works. So when you drink your tea nowadays, do you still get reminded of the mixing the atmosphere or the churning of the ocean? I'm always playing with everything. I'm a great believer that people should play with toys. And the nice thing actually about um, tea and coffee and teacups is that there are lots of different things. You'd be astonished uh, at the number of different ways you can play with a teacup that show you different things about the world. So quite often um, I might not think about the weather. It might be some one of the other things like the sound you hear when you uh, tap your teacup against the side of a mug, for example, or the change in pitch that you hear um, as you're as you're stirring as the water as the uh, coffee kind of spreads out against the side and then goes back down to the middle. So the, there's actually a, a teacups are surprisingly good toy. Uh, and I think we should all play with them more. And I certainly do. I actually loved, uh, there's a video of you online talking about why uh, the design of a standard teacup uh, oftentimes leads to tea spilling because of how we interact with it. Yeah, so there's this funny little, so there's all these little coincidences, right? And sometimes they really help us and sometimes they're a bit inconvenient. And they're not sort of designed, it's just that sometimes things kind of line up. And this is one of those. So People will be familiar that if you've got, um, you know, a mug in front of you and it's got some coffee in it and you give it a bit of a push just while it's sitting on the table, that the coffee will start to slosh from side to side, which is interesting. But there's more to it, because if you get mugs of different sizes, so you get like a little espresso mug, for example, or one of those big kind of bucket mugs that you get, you know, sometimes um, and you give those a bit of a shove. What you'll notice is that the sloshing happens at a different rate. So the sloshing in the in the espresso cup will happen really, really quickly because it's small. And then the bigger mug, it will happen much more slowly. And you can kind of scale that up. You know, if you imagine taking a, a bath, you know, like the bath you might have in your bathroom, when the water sloshes from one side to the other and that it happens even more slowly so there's, there's an observation there which is that the sloshing rate uh depends on the size of the mug and each size of mug has its own sloshing rate so that's all well and good and then there's what happens when i um fetch my tea every morning so in my office here at university college london my my office is at the opposite end of the corridor from the tea room and so every morning and afternoon i, I go and get some tea and then I bring it back to my office. And because I'm always in a hurry, I walk very quickly down the corridor. And basically, almost every day, I spill my tea, at least a little bit. And the reason is that when I'm charging down the corridor, walking slightly too quickly, the rate of my steps is almost exactly the sloshing rate of the tea in the mug. And what happens when you do that? So, so anything that's got a natural sloshing rate or vibration rate, it's called its natural frequency. Um, if you push it at exactly that rate, um, you'll push the sloshing higher and higher. And if you push it too fast, it won't go. And if you push it at a rate that's too slow, it won't go. But if you get that push, you know, push, 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 this periodic thing just right, the sloshing will go higher and higher. And so it just so happens that um, the speed of human walking is almost exactly the same sloshing rate as your standard mug. So when you're walking with a mug of tea, that's why it's very hard not to spill it. It's because of this coincidence of the rate that you're walking and the natural frequency of the tea. And that's it's known as resonance, right? You take one frequency, you, you, you take something that oscillates at a frequency, you drive it with an external frequency, um, and you get this very strong response. And the reason it's important, the pattern, is that 
it's not just relevant to teacups. It's the same thing, for example, that um, caused a very specific uh, set of damage. That um, in so, for example, there was a, an earthquake in 1985 in Mexico City, near Mexico City, and the engineers who went to the city afterwards noticed something really weird. Um, they noticed that all the buildings below five stories high, they were basically fine after the earthquake. A lot of the buildings between five and 20 stories high had fallen over, but a lot of the buildings higher than 20 stories, and there were a lot of them, they were basically fine as well. And it turns out that what had happened, they worked out, was a similar phenomenon. So if you imagine a tall, thin building, um, if you give it the ground it's on, a bit of a push, the building will start to sway from side to side. And in the same way that the sloshing has a rate that depends on the size of the mug, the building has a swaying rate that depends on the height of the building. And it just so happened with that earthquake that it, it, something quite unusual happened, which was that the ground shook at a very specific frequency. So the rate of shaking was very, very, it's almost like a pure tone, exactly one rate, which happened to be just the frequency um, that a building between five and 20 stories high would sway at. So in that case, you're driving this oscillating system uh, with the ground shaking and the buildings that sway at exactly that rate sway much, 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 much more. And they were the ones that fell over. So the same phenomenon has really important consequences if you're into civil engineering, for example. And resonance is important in all kinds of places. So it's just one of those little patterns. And once you see it, you know, like, and it's the same when you push a child on a swing, for example. Um, and actually, this, a similar process helps our mobile phones communicate with each other. So once you understand that little pattern, you see the same pattern again and again and again. And it's not then a fact, it becomes a tool that you can go out into the world with. One of my favorite examples from the book kind of struck home for me because I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is the home of the Heinz Company, which is famous for its catch-up. And there is a uh, an item we all knew growing up there. I don't know how we all knew it, but everyone seemed to know it, that the best way to get ketchup out of that glass Heinz ketchup bottle was to tap the neck. And there was a 57 for the 57th recipe they used to. Uh, that was the final ketchup recipe. It's 57 embossed on the side of the bottle right along the neck where you're supposed to tap it that would get the ketchup out perfectly without it sort of all coming out in one big burst. Um, but I never really thought about why that was. And you spent some time explaining why we tap the neck of those glass ketchup bottles to get it out. Yeah, right. So this is all to do with um, the patterns that are associated with time. And the so ketchup is, ketchup is weird stuff um, in in really interesting way. It's a... So most fluids have... You know, we said they have viscosity. So, and what that means is that they're you sort of, you know, they're quite thick and they're hard to stir. For example, so syrup is viscous, uh, whereas air is a fluid that isn't very viscous. So, the more viscous something is, the kind of harder it is to make it move um, if it's a liquid. And ketchup is a really interesting thing because, so in, if because I didn't grow up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the people around where I lived in Britain always did the same things, try and get the ketchup out of the bottle. And fundamentally, it doesn't work. And what they would do is turn the bottle upside down uh, and then hit the bottom of the bottle. And the problem with that is that nothing happens, nothing happens. And then all of the ketchup in the bottle seems to come out at once. And you just end up with this, you know, plate full of ketchup. And the reason that that happens is that ketchup is a thick, viscous fluid. 
when it's not doing anything. But it's got this very strange uh, property, which is that if you try and shove it really quickly, it suddenly becomes much less viscous. So it suddenly goes thinner. And so what happens with the trying to shake or shake the bottle up and down or hit it on the bottom is that the whole thing is thick and viscous, not coming out of the bottle, until you shake it so hard that it has to move and it all whooshes out of the bottle um, as if it was a much less viscous fluid. And that's because the rate at which you've pushed it uh, is so fast. And um, it's called a non-Newtonian fluid. And the problem with, so this, the reason that tapping the neck is a good solution is because tapping the, hitting the bottom of the bottle and shaking it hard is not the solution. Um, if you tap the neck, what happens is that the only fluid you make, the only ketchup you make less viscous is the ketchup that's right by the neck. So you can basically control how much comes out because everything else in the bottle stays really thick and gloopy. But the bit by the neck, because you, that's the bit that's getting tapped and getting shoved that bit becomes much thinner. So, you, so the ketchup only comes out in kind of small bits. And so it's much more controllable. You don't end up with kind of soup instead of ketchup. Um, and, and there's a lot of the point about that is that the time scale over which you do something uh, changes how things behave. And that comes up again and again and again that, you know, we think there are some rules about how the world works. But if you do something much faster or much slower, actually just the rate of doing something changes what happens uh, and that's important in lots of different ways so um, it's one of the things for example that helps snails uh, move themselves along they've got a very clever way because if you look at the way a snail moves it never actually leaves the surface right it's not like a caterpillar that kind of picks itself up and you know scoots one bit along while it's not touching the surface um, a, uh, a, a snail just stays stuck to the surface. And the way it does it is it's got this very clever way of controlling which bits are very which bits of its um, gloop, its mucus, are very viscous and therefore stick solid, and which bits are less viscous um, and therefore scoot along quite quickly and quite easily. And so this, this process of controlling the time over which something happens give, allows you to control the system. So I have to say, I'm thoroughly enjoying this uh, type of, of communication that you have, where you take these sort of everyday concepts and link them to what is seemingly complicated scientific phenomenon. And I wonder why is why did you tackle this idea of relevance of everyday uh, concepts uh, to bring people to... Uh, you know, some really complicated scientific systems. That seems like an interesting approach, but one that's fraught with all sorts of potholes along the way. Well, so I'm a physicist and I study the physics of the ocean surface. And I have noticed that people don't really think, that people don't really associate that with physicists and physics. You know, physics is all seen as being quantum and cosmology. But physicists fundamentally... Um, they look for patterns. We look for patterns. And when you see a pattern in one place, it becomes a tool to use in lots of others. And it occur and I play with the world all the time. I don't think that uh, kids are the ones, the only ones who should play with toys. Adults can play with these things in the everyday world. And it matters so much because these are the rules of the universe. This is how the world works. You know, these things like Newton's laws, um, the universal law of gravitation, things like surface tension and viscosity. These are the rules that help our bodies work. They help our planet work. 
work. Um, and we can see them in the everyday. So I don't think that these little everyday things are trivial. They are absolutely not. They contain the heart of the framework that rules our world. You know, all of us are subject to the same laws of physics. It's fundamentally democratic. And you don't need a particle accelerator or a posh lab or a white coat to see the fundamental rules of the, the world at work. You don't even have to believe what I wrote in the book. You can go and look at these things for yourself and try it for yourself and see that different mugs slosh at different rates. Um, and I think so the first thing is it annoyed me that it's always sort of frustrated me that no one saw all the toys in the world around them. Let's play with the toys. The next thing is that I think it's really important that people feel that they can explore these things for themselves, that, you know, that you, it's not it's not held away from them. Everyone can go and, and touch and play with these things. And the thing is that if you've got an idea about how something works, you can try it out. Right. If you. um so there's a, you know, there was a, there's a bit in there about why toast falls butter side down, because it does tend to fall butter side down. That's actually true. And I had a friend who uh, read that chapter and he texted me one day while he was reading the chapter. And he said he was sitting in a, a posh hotel. He happened to be working abroad. He was sitting at breakfast. And I'm really tempted to push the toast off the table because I don't believe what you wrote in your book. And that that's the point, right? He doesn't have to believe me. He can try it for himself and he can explore those physical laws with his toast at the breakfast table by himself. And so I think there's, there's something there that's really important about instead of being afraid of the physical world and thinking it's full of rules that you that you're not allowed to play with is that you actually can you can you can test and experiment for yourself and you can work things out for yourself because that's the next important thing is that all these little important tools um, allow you to be a better citizen because it's not about knowing all the answers at all it's being able to ask the right questions when someone comes along to kind of sell you double glazing or something you know they're going to say things about what this glass does and if you have some knowledge of the fundamental rules that make the whole thing work you can ask the right questions to work out whether what they're saying is reasonable so there's a whole mixture of stuff like that and then the final thing that there is in the book is i think something scientists don't talk about enough is that you have a different perspective. Once you're familiar with these tools, instead of just being this confusing place where random things happen, the world becomes something that you can understand uh, and your perspective on it changes. And so there's a bit at the end of the book about the, the, the change in perspective that it gives you. Um, and I think that each of us, you know, each individual has three life support systems. We've got our own body, we've got a planet, and we've got our civilization. And each of those is an independent system, but they're all interlinked. But they're all run by these universal rules about how the world works, about how surface tension and viscosity and acceleration work. And so in order to keep ourselves alive, as well as enjoying all the, you know, the fun bits that, that curiosity gives you, I think it's really important that, that people feel comfortable with the world around them. And, you know, things like smartphones are starting to take it way because you just touch the screen and magic happens but we still live in physical bodies we sit on chairs that are about this size we pick up pieces of toast that fall butter side down you know we still live in the physical world and and i is i i'm worried that people are starting to retreat from it a little bit um and so these i think being able to just look at the world and, and notice these things is really important well, there's still no app for getting my morning coffee into my mouth. So as long as we have those physical devices, I still think you have the opportunity to make these observations. I wonder if you ever get pushback from uh, what is often assumed inside of uh, science communication, that there is this vanguard of scientists from a different generation that see this kind of linkage of 
um, to uh, current modern day items and this relevance as devaluing the complexity uh, and the high mindedness that some of these complex scientific topics represent. So there are definitely snobs out there. And the snobs are not actually usually in the scientific community. The snobs are as much out in the rest of the world as they are within that, within, you know, within the ivory towers or whatever they're supposed to be. Um, Because most, so so I'm I'm an experimentalist. Most of my colleagues in my department are, are experimentalists. And we're used to touching and, you know, pushing the world and poking it and seeing what it does. And we all enjoy doing it. So I don't encounter that snobbishness here. I do see it in the rest of the, I have, I have come across it because people sort of go, oh, well, you know, teacups are for the children. And that is, that is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Um, and so I think the pushback only comes from those who are either too pompous or too arrogant to realize that there are things they don't know about teacups and trees. Because if most, I think most physicists don't know quite a lot of the material that's in the book. I deliberately picked examples, like why pigeons bob their heads, right? You can have as many degrees as you like in either biology or physics. I bet you don't know the answer to that question. But it's an interesting observation. Um, And the idea is that we can all just learn from this. So there is the snobbishness. And I do find it really irritating, to be honest, because people assume that because I wrote a book about, you know, details, that it's somehow not clever. Uh, or that the ideas in it aren't worth, you know, aren't really kind of meaty intellectual ideas. But actually, I I disagree with that because I don't think that ignoring the real world is particularly clever. <laughs> and uh, and I think understanding it is really important. And also being used to admit that you're wrong. I think a lot of the snobbishness comes from, you know, they might say, oh, you know, it's, of course I understand how a, how a teacup does this. But if they haven't thought about it and played with it, I bet they don't. And they might see the physical principles and they might get there a little bit more quickly than a member of the population who doesn't have any science training. But I think that the, the important point is that scientists are still learning. Like we know the patterns. You know, if you're trained in science, you're trained in these patterns and how to use them. But it doesn't mean you know everything. And it still means that you need to poke and prod the world and not take your knowledge for granted. So, yeah, the snobbishness is annoying. But to be honest, um, I think that the... The snobs can just deal with their own little world and die out, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I, I think that an open spirit of inquiry, an openness about what individuals know and don't know, because having a degree in science doesn't mean you know anything, know everything. It means you know a lot of things and you have a lot of experience, but it doesn't mean you're omniscient. Um, so the snobs can just live in their own little snobbish world. The rest of us would like to know how the world works and admit what we don't know and understand and learn and get better at playing with stuff. And playing with stuff is fun. And the snobs are not having any fun. So leave them alone is my attitude to that. So I definitely don't know everything and I don't pretend to. So there's a couple more things I really wanted to learn about that you reference. Um, And one is that over the holiday, I'm going to visit my family in Arizona. And you've talked about a enthusiast community in Arizona that seek out scorpions in a really interesting way. And I was wondering if you can take us into that story of scorpions. So if you are out in the desert uh in somewhere like Arizona and it's dark right maybe there's a little bit dusk just a bit bit of light on the horizon you can't see anything it's night the dark is kind of you can look at it in two ways you can assume that 
you can't see anything bad, so it's not there. Or you can assume that you can't see anything, so everything bad might be out there. Um, but if you're someone who doesn't like scorpions, there is a solution on offer. And um, what a scorpion enthusiast will do in the pitch black is they will take a torch which shines light that you and I cannot see. It, it shines ultraviolet light. So imagine a rainbow going from red all the way through to uh, violet. And then beyond the violet is the ultraviolet that our eyes can't see. But you can get a torch that makes that light. And if you shine that around uh, your feet, well, hopefully not your actual feet, that would be a bit of a shock. Uh, but, you know, out into the rocks and, and sort of scrubby bushes out in the desert, once in a while, you will catch sight of a blinding flash of this kind of light greenish blue. And it wasn't there until you shone the UV light on it. And then suddenly there's this blue, blue bright light. And what it is, is a scorpion. Um, and scorpions are doing something really clever. The, their carapace, the, the hard uh, shell on the outside has this pigment in it which does something which is just one of those lovely little physics things which is spectacular when you start to think about it it takes light that we can't see the ultraviolet and it turns it into light that we can see so the reason the scorpio shines so brightly is that it, its carapace is taking in the uv light and it gives back this blue green light so if you want to find a scorpion that's how to do it and so this is fluorescence and it's not just useful for scorpions because if you, you know, if you're on a, a city street, for example, one of those cities where there's lots of cyclists on a dull, you know, kind of dull gray morning, the sort of morning they don't, they tend not to have in Arizona, to be honest. We have a lot of them in London. Um, and uh, on this gray morning, what you'll see is that the high vis jackets, you know, the sort of bright yellow and orange jackets that the cyclists are wearing, they look like they're glowing. And the reason for that is that they are. There's ultraviolet light that comes from the sun, even though we can't see it. And even on a dull morning, there's quite a lot of ultraviolet light around. And the pigments in the high-vis jackets are taking that ultraviolet that we can't see and they're turning it into this bright yellow that we can see. So the cyclists genuinely are glowing. It's like the ultimate free lunch. They're taking something which is basically useless, no use to us anyway, and they're turning it into light that you can see a cyclist by, you know. And so, and that, it's it's one of those and you know the reason the scorpions fluoresce it's an evolutionary thing um people think it's to help them know whether they can hide themselves well enough because a scorpion can detect whether it's glowing and at dusk if it's going hunting um if it goes out too far under a rock so it's not hidden uh something else might come and eat it but if it can detect its own glow from the the uv in the sky it knows it has to hide better so the scorpions have a reason for doing it which was brilliant until humans with uv torches came along um but it's just i mean it, this is a sort of common physics thing and it's so useful and we use fluorescence in all kinds of ways this taking one type of light and turning it into another and it's very common for example in medical diagnostics and that sort of thing so it starts with a scorpion. And the other thing is that, you know, physics isn't always in the lab. There's all this culture and history and, you know, people are using this stuff. It's not, it's, physics is not for them. It's for us. It's how the, our real world works. And the book, the book's deliberately lots of stories about, you know, things that have happened to me and as well as odd little things about what limits the height of a tree, for example, because this is where physics is. It isn't just about cosmology. It isn't just about quantum mechanics. It's right here and it's helping us do things. And so not only is it helping us understand things, it's also helping us build the devices of the future, you know, the sort of wind turbines and solar panels and um, any other system, you know, medical diagnostics that are going to take our technology, our, our civilization forwards.
Just a reminder to our listeners that Storm in a Teacup, The Physics of Everyday Life, uh, Helen's new book will be available in the U.S. starting on January 10th and is available in the U.K. already. Um, one last question. I it w- I would be remiss with having you on and not talking about bubbles, which is your area of academic interest. Um, and I was wondering wh- how bubbles can be an area of academic interest. Bubble physicist is a very serious job, I'll have you know. Um, it's uh, So bubbles bubbles are really interesting. And I'm not talking about soap bubbles here. I'm talking about gas bubbles in uh, a liquid. So for me, that's usually air bubbles in water. And I study the bubbles in the surface of the ocean. You know, Just after a wave breaks, you get that kind of white patch of foam on top. But underneath that, there's a huge plume of bubbles. But bubbles are everywhere. They're in, you know, medicine and industry and our kettles and baths and cake and all kinds of places. And the reason that bubbles are so significant is that they're this combination of two things, a liquid and a gas. Um, but they, this mixture has properties that neither the liquid or the gas have. And perhaps the most obvious example is um, if you get, uh, you know, a cappuccino with a layer of foam on top, uh, you sometimes see a, a coffee snob um, put the, uh, balance a teaspoon horizontally on the foam uh, to see whether or not it falls through. And, you know, the, the stronger the foam, the, the, you know, the longer the spoon will stay on top. And the reason that's weird, if you just think about it for a moment, is that if you put a spoon on top of some air, it would just fall through it. And if you put a spoon on top of some coffee, it would just fall through it or some milk, um, you know, just fall straight through. But if you, if you mix the air and the liquids together, suddenly you get something which can hold a spoon up. And so the properties of a bubbly fluid are very different to the, either fluid by itself beforehand, either the liquid or the gas. So bubbles are really useful. They're like the unsung heroes of the physical world. They're doing things all around us that we don't really pay attention to, but they're very useful tools. And so the ones that I study in the surface of the ocean are effectively helping the ocean breathe. We're putting um, a lot of extra carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, uh, you know, our civilization is, and about a third of that ends up in the oceans and it gets there uh, in large part through bubbles. So the bubbles are playing a role in helping the oceans breathe. And they also spit tiny particles up into the atmosphere. If you imagine holding a fizzy drink under your nose, you, um, you know, you'll feel it spitting tiny particles up your nose. And the foam patches on the ocean are also spitting tiny particles up into the sky and they drift upwards and can be very important for things like cloud formation. So bubbles are right there. You know, the atmosphere is massive. The ocean is massive and the layer between them is really thin. But for anything to go from one massive reservoir to the other, it needs to go through that thin, quite frequently bubbly layer. Um, And the bubbles are little vehicles that help that happen. So they are really important, even though people just sort of associate them with the bath and champagne. Um, they actually are doing something really interesting. And so it's a, it is a very um, worthwhile area of study. So given the topic of your book, I can imagine the next time somebody takes a bath, taking a look at those bubbles on the surface and thinking about how clouds form and how the ocean maybe nearby to their home is breathing, as it were. Uh, and I sort of love that analogy. I'm definitely going to take my morning coffee in a different light today than I ever did before. Um, so thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds, Helen Chersky. Thank you very much. So 
So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us on this installment of Inquiring Minds. Indre will be back next week, but we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Rihala, Jonathan Worsley, Shushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and as always, Nick Cadillac. We couldn't do this show without you. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can send us comments, feedback, your idea of how to get ketchup out of a bottle or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. Crazy Good Turns is a new hit podcast celebrating people who do crazy good things for others. This holiday season, hear the story of former Marine Jake Wood, who founded Team Rubicon, an organization giving veterans a renewed sense of purpose by organizing them for disaster relief. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Thanks again to Heifer International for sponsoring today's episode. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash mines for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash mines. Help end hunger. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed in your Keurig, coffee maker, and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's Cold K-Cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.